The Hard Yards, brought to you by Sports Joe. Got to the short side. Oh, it's Before, but I'm the referee on this team, not you. Hi, Rob. Zeeds here. Just want to discuss the captaincy next. He's calling. Oh, and Ring Rose comes through. Oh, that is brilliant from Ring Rose. Ring Rose is going here. What a score! Welcome, welcome to the Hard Yards. I'm Andy McGeady, and I am excited about today's show. I'm joined in studio by the trusty duo of Pat McCarry. Pat, good morning. How are you? Very well. And Kevin McLaughlin. Morning, Andrew. You're looking very bright. Yeah, I'm doing my best to copy you. I'm just good at that you're wearing the most dour grey Jared jumper ever on a Monday morning. I am dressed Steel in uniform. Mo- yeah, this is Monday morning Steel material uniform. right here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Pale blue shirt, dark grey jumper. All he needs a little tie sort of down to about there. Yeah. Um, we're a little less giddy than the last time you were in. Six Nations show was properly giddy. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, I think we were all just on a high after the Six Nations, but uh, lo- loads to excite- be excited about still in Irish rugby. Yeah, it's good. Um, um, place, uh, loads yeah. like exciting games at the weekend and good rugby and uh, Leinster producing some more young fellas mm-hmm. for oh, us to watch and enjoy. The production line continues. Yeah, you were at the RDS? I was, yeah. We'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah, I was dry, unlike a lot of people. You were happy with the stewards. I saw you were, you were commending them over Twitter. The Leinster Stewards. Yeah, so it was a, a half-full stadium. Like, there was never going to be a full crowd for the home match mm. against Um But after, I'd say, 10 minutes, the rain was biblical. I mean, it yeah. was just driving down. And you know when the rain drives down so hard, you see people scatter like ants <laughs> from the stand. And I was I was with a friend in the grandstand just below the press box, actually, and uh, they, uh, I was talking to them saying they need to let those people in. Like, there's no point people getting soaked. You know? mm. But I suppose, in theory, all the season ticket holders could arrive. But at halftime, I thought yeah, you would have been the opposite, up in the grandstand, sweating with an extra pair of gloves on, looking down at them, saying, don't let the commoners in, leave me <laughs> up here in my grandstand. And I'm, I'm delighted here at my three seats either side of me. Like. No, my, but- <laughs> Sunday papers. my butler takes care of all that. <laughs> um, anyway, the, we will have a couple of very big, both literally and figuratively, people coming in later on. Um, we're speaking with the all-black legend Brad Thorne about coaching with the Reds, playing with Leinster, playing with Kev. More, more importantly, the big, the big one, um, <laughs> and generally about being a very admired man in the game. And then we are talking to Damien Brown, um, rower in chief, about his solo row across the Atlantic and other adventuring and his rugby. So um, yeah, that's coming up. Um, also, we've had some great shows recently. You might uh, might make sure to check out. We caught up with Conrad Smith in episode fifty six, and he was in great form. Definitely worth a listen. And here's a quick few seconds. <laughs> So where did the snakey nickname come from? <laughs> it's not as... Uh, I don't know. We were, it, it was a cricket coach that gave it to me, to be honest. And, uh, everyone has their own opinions, which aren't very flattering, I tell you. When I first met my wife, it wasn't a nickname that I wanted to be in <laughs> but, um, It was, to be honest, it was a cricket coach who... I, I showed a lot of energy in the field and was uh, stopping the ball a lot. And he called me a, like looked like a snake in the outfield, so... But yeah, it's stuck ever since. Right, so we're into the very meaty end of the Pro 14 season. First season of conferences. Um, mm. As you said, Kev, there's a, a couple of good results now all around. It started on Friday night. Um, we probably won't mention Connacht yet, producer Al. Uh, it's pretty, we'll leave that in Wales. But they got battered by Ospreys, eh? They did, yeah. So that's it. <laughs> Every uh, week is just Connacht. <clears throat> I know, yeah. Serious performance by Ulster, though. I was, that's yeah, it. The good like, news. They, to get a, a BP win over in Edinburgh was a phenomenal result and really took um, a major, major uh, risk away from their season because right now they're looking very, very good for... Uh, for getting into that Champions Cup playoff, amazing how some yeah something like that changes, and they would have loved to have got that back on on Edinburgh, you know, because they beat them over in um, up in Kingspan, Ravenhill, and uh, just great to see kind of the big boys stepping up for him as well. Henderson got that try at the end, but Stockdale with two try assists, and normally mm. it's you could tell he was drawing people to him because he's you, danger paying man. attention to your fantasy rugby team. Right? <laughs> oh God, that's probably. <laughs> If, if I'm picking a minus point at this stage I think I, 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 like one of those people who do fantasy we kind of give it give it socks for eight or nine weeks and then mm. 
I probably still have, you know, all the Six Nations lads are probably still left in there. So <laughs> I'll log in. I'll log in during the show and let them, you know how I'm getting on. But um, great to see them. And um, yeah, because Edinburgh was the big game for them. They had to win. But it is amazing that you're just kind of like, this is the Ulster that, you know, Ulster can do this. But at least they pulled it off. And, and hopefully they kind of can finish the season on a high. Because as you were pointing out, their, their run in isn't anywhere near easy at all. Hmm. It's. it's uh I know uh, some of the provinces take exception to <clears throat> the RFU rules of you know not letting foreign players harbour those key positions, but you've got to look at the Ruan PNR decision now uh, using hindsight yeah. <clears throat> and where John Cooney might be if uh, Ruan PNR was still in Ulster. Mm. We've now got four provinces and four top class Irish scrum halves. And you compare that to our English and French counterparts where the majority of the top-class halfbacks are foreigners in the top teams. It's just an incredible advantage for us to have. And it's painful for the provinces at the time, but the RFU are doing a good job of it. Um, mm, Cooney was man of the match the weekend there as well. He was yeah. man of the match. He's been their best player all season, yeah. hands down. He plays kicks for them. He scores uh, every second game. He makes breaks every single game. He's really composed. He's played a 10 for them. Yeah. He's been absolutely exceptional for them all season. And it would not have happened if Ruben PNR had stayed. And mm. you know that was that was the thing. Ulster were were absolutely going going mental about it at the end of the season. That will never replace them. And he's come in and stepped up. This he's been the least of their scrum half has been the least of their problems, unfortunately, this season. Mm. But um, no, I was delighted to see them um, get a good win at, at the weekend. Like you say, Connacht decide a good weekend for the Irish provinces. Mm. Um, so yeah, moved on to so it's Leinster Zebra. Apart from the weather, um, Zebra arrived bare bones. They had five front rows on the bench. Have, okay. you ever, have you ever seen that? I've in, never in, seen that. Uh, they, so they named two extra props because they had no no extra locks and back rows ready to go. I mean, that's when you think of, like Leinster have named their um, young Mullins their fifty third mm. player that they've used <laughs> this season. Well, that's it. Like the way the modern game is going, you need a squad of fifty, um, particularly if you're playing in two competitions. So Leinster and Munster and, and those guys. Like they, when I came into Leinster first, we had an academy of about eight or nine guys. The academy mm. now in Leinster is about twenty one, twenty two players. Yeah. And I mean the sub academy. Then they could go. They can use those guys for the A games. Then the academy guys are coming to the academy expecting to play for the senior team. And I was in the academy. You didn't have a hope playing for the seniors because you were using maybe thirty five players in a season. The games it's pretty brutal now. And I think because Leinster have nineteen twenty players in national camp at any one time, they yeah. just have to have to dive quite deep. But the same with the with the Italian teams. There's only two teams that make up the national team, mm. so they lose a lot of players mm. and they have a lot of knocks from the Six Nations, I'd imagine. And it's really, really tough. It's a tough, tough position for Conor O'Shea but, looking but at that Michael like, Bradley. Like. In the first half, it was a funny game. Leinster were having trouble getting out of second gear. You could <clears> see that. Okay, the pack aside, there was just a few things that were a little disjointed. Mm. But you saw Healy and Furlong, um, Tracy's an, an Irish international. Mm-hmm. Um, you had Devon Toner captaining the side for the first time. Uh, you had um, competent players there like Kearney. Um, you had uh, Dan Levy playing as well. Max Deegan had a stormer man of the match. But that's a decent pack. Yeah. And Zebra got two scrum penalties before all the subs came. And when the subs came, that changed. Um, but this was a game where Zebra made some really weird decisions in the first half as well, like going for the posts when they were 17, I think it was 17-3 down, you're sort of going, you could pop that in the corner or, <laughs> you know, try. Um, but it was Leinster saw what they, they got what they wanted, which was players like Deegan coming to the fore and playing mm. really well. Which yeah. Want, yeah oh yeah there were, and, and again like the because we, we heard that there was a bit of a setback there for Reese Ruddock and Sean O'Brien so you have someone like Max Deegan who made his European debut and now knows only a minute or two but um, he might be needed like you know in this in this uh, semi final like so um, if he's getting a, a bit of confidence for himself and playing am- amongst the other bigger lads and kind of they're all patting him on the back then it might come in handy because he might be needed off the bench uh, for that semi final so that's good to see and and he's been watching a bit of Conor Murray. It's Seems. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, well, the, the the I think maybe Andy, you might probably ha- ex- technically describe it all, but it was the exact same thing. Over um, the ball was out of a rook. He's looking at the referee, giving mm-hmm. him a nod. I'm going for this. This this ball is in play. Yeah. Uh, went stole it from almost around his legs and dashed off and got himself. I think ten or fifteen meter run for a try. So uh, just great <coughs> awareness again. And it's I think you're going to see a lot more of this now. All of a sudden in the next yeah. couple of months because guys are alert to this now. Shows yeah. a level of maturity for him. But ju- just going back to the likes of Max Deegan and Josh Murphy it's been they've got a lot of experience over the season probably more than they would have expected coming in due to injuries to the likes of Reese and Shawnee and a couple of others and, and Jamie retiring obviously but 
you go back to the Scarlet's away game a few weeks ago um, in the pissing rain it was on a Friday night it was, it was during the Six Nations it was one where Sean he got a dunt in his shoulder mm. and, and the two guys they had, a, they had a tough night in the office I think yeah. the Scarlet's are a wily team they're hard to play against particularly in Wales and I think that would have been a great learning experience for them it's very different to Zebra at home and I think being able to cut their teeth in a couple of tough games like that means that when they do potentially get a chance, uh, guys like Josh and Max in a semi-final of Europe, it's really important that you've played some of those tougher games as well. Mm. Mm. So I'm glad to see Leo has allowed, well he's been forced to essentially give them opportunities in those bigger games as well and in those tougher games because it's it's just a completely different animal. Yep. And we um, got South African series, Cardiff and Munster are both down there. Um, different travelling experiences <laughs> it seems. Right. So before we get to Munster, if anyone didn't see this, um, we were getting blow by blow updates on a Cardiff travel saga. It was like Connacht a few years back getting back from their mission to Moscow. <laughs> it was a fifty five hours. Yeah, fifty five hours, and three lads went ahead of the team. Yeah. The other guys couldn't get on the flight, and then the bags were getting lost bags when they got didn't there. Arrive when they got there, it took. It, they were delayed getting out of Heathrow. Then they were delayed getting out of Johannesburg to get to Bloemfontein. It would have been faster for them to just jump in <laughs> rental cars oh and drive God. to Bloemfontein. Give Damien Brown a shout and yeah. see if they can head down with them. <laughs> then they almost won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Penalty try, penalty try. Yeah, but um, well done, Cardiff. I can't tell, tell you what they could have a very tough game this week because I'd say there's a lot of mental energy used there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Munster, CJ Sanders returned to George. Well done, CJ. Yeah, I was. Uh, that, that was another game that looked like it was going to be tough uh, for them at the start as well because Kings, I think, went into a seventeen-three or seventeen-five lead or something like that, and um, and then Munster just kind of came back and blew them away. And then the highlight for that game, far from Stander made some brilliant carries. Was that Rory Scannell oh, offload oh, that uh, for Goggins try? Yeah, Jesus, you <laughs> could watch that again and again and again, which I did. Yeah, it's, it's worth people. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, just checking it out there. I think Pro Fourteen have the highlights up on YouTube, so worth having a look at that because this. You almost miss it first time. You only catch it on the slow mo. Just exactly it get, it what he did. It gets better every time. It's just it's it's brilliant, and to do it at such pace. Mm, yeah. Overall, do we think the the South Africa experiment has been a success? What What are people's opinions on that? It's um, yeah. Well, everyone almost not, yeah. Like people love the cheetahs. It's almost like they're they're like a scarlet's you yeah, know, version. Whatever gets the cheetahs playing in early, mm. great. I'm mm. up for it. Mm. And the kings, they'll get better. You hope that you hope they will. I just. Mm. We, at the moment, other leagues look at us and they say, "Right, it's a good, like produce some top quality teams, four or five top quality teams, and then you've got you know three or four really poor teams every season that can compete in Europe." And you have uh, you know proponents of the English and the French leagues saying there's no really weak teams in our leagues. Every single week is a tough game. You don't have a zebra at home. Mm. Really. Where there's five props on the bench or whatever it was, you know, mm. I would just hate for the Kings to turn into a team like that where people just know they're going to be the whipping boy every week. I'd love if they turn into a strong franchise. God, I think I think like Saru are committed to backing them. I think they're in a really important important like political area in South Africa as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, where they actually really want to get in behind them, get some like a couple of Springboks playing there. But at the moment. I, I agree with you the Cheetah story is great they're going to be in the playoffs which is ideal and I mm. think that's enough of a positive for this year to justify mm. the decision to bring the South African teams in mm. but they're um, losing players well that's it yeah that's, the danger is going to be a shop window as well and, and yeah well that's it but if they can strike the balance right so if you've got players suddenly how many players South African players going well actually this is a big shop window for us to get a move great as long as the Cheetahs and Kings can actually hang on to them for long enough that they're useful. Mm. But, you know, staying for half season isn't good for anyone. No, it's not. Um, but That's always going to be the challenge for South African teams. It's, yeah. you're, you're getting, what, 14 rand for your Euro. It's just so tempting. <laughs> it really is so tempting for them. It's very difficult and it's... But uh, they, they have such a conveyor belt of talent in South yeah. Africa. So I just really hope they can put together two. They the, have the a strong franchise. The player numbers should mean that they that whatever happens, there should be two competitive teams. Yeah, and considering the Kings like lost, they lost what, half their squad? Yeah. More oh, than yeah. half their squad just before the start of the oh, 14 it, it was insane. They had players in on loan and just, yeah. they were grabbing people off the street. Considering <laughs> that, they yeah. actually haven't done badly. Mm. Yeah. It could have been a lot worse, you know, so... So let's look at what the here's how the playoffs would look if the season ended today. But there's two rounds and a couple of extra little games to go because we we lost some games earlier yeah, in the Ulster season. Yeah, have one, don't they? Yeah. yeah. So uh, 
two two full rounds left right now it would be the top team in each conference going straight through to the semis okay and that would be Glasgow from conference A and Leinster from conference B Glasgow right. qualified back in October didn't they for the playoffs <laughs> yeah um, and but this would and they have a game in hand oh yeah, they they do, just yeah. against and, and that could be important in a couple of ways so they they are at home they would be at home to Munster or Edinburgh so they sw- they switch. We were talking about this beforehand. Just to make yeah. sure we got it right. And the other the other the other quarter final, as they're calling them, would be scarlets and cheetahs. Jesus, get to that game. Yeah, <laughs> that would be an amazing game. Um, but but they're not locked down yet. Okay, so for the next couple of weeks, you've got some big games here. Um, Glasgow could impact a lot of Irish hopes because they play Connacht and then Ulster over the next couple of weeks. But by the time if they beat Connacht, they'll be through. They'll have guaranteed their top yeah, seed. So then they can. So they might travel to Kingspan, going. Actually, we don't care. Mm, we'll name fifteen team. props. Mm. You know, <laughs> it, it'll be fine. Um, Leinster need uh, any sort of a. I think pretty much any sort of a point, two points. I think from the next game, and they're guaranteed through against Treviso. I think I'm right in saying that they should be able to manage that. Yeah, um, Munster to finish top, to they need up. Uh, what Leinster need what five points to finish top or six points from the next two games? No, fewer because <coughs> there's only two games left and they are four game four, points, four points, points ahead. ahead. Oh yeah, yeah you're so right. Matter run. Yeah, they need they need a couple then more. They need one away. To Ignore college. my previous yeah. thing about two points. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll probably beat Treviso and blow all that out of the water. But I actually uh, the way the table sits today is I would guess the way it'll actually finish the top three only on both sides. I would guess it'll actually finish like that so they're going to be cracking playoff games actually yeah and then shaping up really nicely so then before we get into the Champions Cup stuff right um, well done Bristol Bristol yeah, have got yeah. promoted a few hours there so Jason Harris Wright Ian Madigan Jack O'Connell Mark Tankton um, and more coming jo- um, Johnny Harris Wright Jason's brother is the S and C coach. Yeah, oh, really? yeah, yeah. So the, the two brothers are in there. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Now, so well done. And now might be the time that now the Saracens have crashed out and there's no. Uh, did you read the Jared Mar piece in the Guardian? Kind of what was let's us. change the rules again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're so joking. He, he's well. He's doing. Yeah, I, I was actually taking the piss last week on Twitter, saying uh, you know enjoy this lads before they change the rules again. And Jared is obviously talking to people in the game in the Premiership. Um, and here's the quote from his piece: "There is a feeling among English clubs that the Champions Cup has lost its aura." <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is all coming back to let's ring fence the Premiership. Bristol are up, which <clears> is the main thing. <throat> Lots of money there. <clears throat> Buy out London Irish, just pass around. Oh, and get rid of relegation. Get rid of relegation, and then over a couple of seasons, have a controlled expansion. So this isn't promotion; this is expansion. Different concept. So, so have franchise model basically. Yeah. So then, let's say you get to fourteen teams. Well, then you're into the player welfare question. Yeah. Oh, there's now too many games. What's their answer? <laughs> the answer floated in this from certain sources would be: Well, let's reduce the number of games you play in Europe. Do you know what's really good to reduce the number of games? don't qualify for the semi-finals that's so good job <laughs> yeah. well done but yeah it's, it's same again let's change the rules Jesus. I saw the uh, Robert Kitson's one as well about having a British-Irish Super League as well Like, and now that would bring in a rake load of money wouldn't it but I don't think either side will ever well, admit to would it though I'd say so, yeah. Like you build up, like it wouldn't happen. So we'd have to turn our backs on our Celtic brothers, then. The, the Celtic, oh no, the Celtic brothers are allowed in as well. They're, um, oh. so we'd have to just ditch the South Africans, so like and, South Africans and Italians so and the French like, can all, yeah. yeah. So you'd have, oh, okay, so you'd have like three conferences or two conferences. Two, uh, I think it was two leagues, uh, tier one, tier two. Connacht bumped down to, <laughs> to tier two, but uh, yeah, this is like almost two divisions. Um, the likes of Saracens, Leicester, Leinster, Munster. Um, yeah, it, it would be one of the. It's almost never like having a, a European Super League. It's never well going to happen. happen. No, that's, <laughs> it, no, that's not going to work. Um, I suppose just to go back to your point, Kev, about the the mid tier. You know, there's no easy games. Do we think that the call it meritocratic qualification has improved? Not the top teams, right? Your Leinster, Munster, Scarlets, Glasgow. They're good, right? Mm. But that tier below. Cardiff to have some name for like exactly mm. absolutely Do, that seems to pardon them 100% I think the quality of the league's gone up yeah. measurably since that came in actually because yeah. you used to get to the, to the last six weeks of the league and the majority of teams had nothing to play for mm. you'd have Cardiff coming into town to Dublin for two nights you know on a jolly because they had nothing to play for and why like why would they think any other way they're like okay we're going to finish mid-table regardless 
um, what's the point what's the point and mm. really properly going after this yeah. like, I think that's up to the league the league has to create incentives for teams yeah. and, and there has to be like you say a proper meritocracy like. no I'm, I'm completely on board with it I think it has improved <coughs> Pro 14 um, and sorry everyone else but I think it's improved it across the board and hopefully we see that filtering into the international side as well as players are playing tough games mm. that improves people The Hard Yards brought to you by Sports Joe now you're welcome back to the Hard Yards, and I'm delighted to be joined by Brad Thorne. Brad, how are you? I'm very good, guys. Thanks for having me. It takes three of us to interview the big man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, um, it's, it's going to be interesting. See how you, see how you guys go, eh? <laughs> All right, there you go. Challenge accepted. Right, World Cup, Heineken Cup, Super Rugby title, state of origin. Um, you, you've you've had a few things under your belt at this stage uh, but you were a rugby league man when you were when you were a youngster how did that happen? That happened because uh, even though I was born in New Zealand uh, I lived there towards nine years of age uh, my family like a, a lot of Kiwi families uh, looked for better opportunities and moved to Australia um, and when I moved to Australia I moved to Queensland Brisbane and uh, I, I, only game I knew being a Kiwi lad was rugby and I loved rugby and I loved the All Blacks uh, but when I came to Brisbane my, uh, at school they played rugby league and my mates loved league and uh, yeah so they got me to come down after a couple of years come down and play some uh, club league with them and uh, it was very similar to rugby Basically, I got to run hard at people and smash people, so I, I was happy. And um, um, yeah, as I grew in, as a teenager, and I guess I started to excel and um, had a had a league career. So picked up by the Brisbane Broncos uh, in in my final year of high school as a seventeen year old, and and then yeah, um, I went from there. Yeah, Brad, I had um, someone was asking me when they knew you were coming on the show. They wanted me to ask you what it was like playing with, with you know, some of those t- top rugby league players at the time because you're in such a good team. The likes of someone like Gordon Tallis. What, what was what was it like playing with those type of guys at that, in that era? It was a great era in the 1990s. I started playing um, um, first grade as a 19 year old in 1994, um, and yeah, Gordon Tallis. We were second row partners. Uh, I think got to win. I think we played three grand finals together. Played Origin together. Played Test. So um, he's still a friend to this day. But yeah, Gordon Tallis. Uh, if you know much about him over there in Ireland, he was a could be a feisty character. We used to call him uh, the kettle. <laughs> so when a you know a kettle um, it boils and it whistles, uh, but then. Then it's flat after that. So yeah, he would fire up. Yeah, he, he would fire up, and he, he might have a dust up or something. But then he'd be spent. You wouldn't see him for the rest of the game. <laughs> so uh, uh, we, you know, I played with guys like Alan Wanger, uh, probably the best player I played with, with in both codes. Um, it's hard to obviously say that um, with all the different positions, but just as much as how he impacted the game, he, he pretty much won games for us. Uh, guys like Steve Renouf, Glenn Lazarus, one of the best front rowers in the league. Um, played against guys like Mel Meninga, um, uh, yeah, Laurie Daly. Yeah. So many uh, great players. Uh, it's a tough game league. It's a real courage game, especially back in that era. Um, you could get bashed in the tackle. You could get bashed in a fight. It was, um, you know, <clears throat> things have changed in both codes uh, these days. It was, it was a lot more feisty. Uh, Torney, Kev here. Um, but despite, yeah. or, or obviously, uh, winning the Heineken Cup final yeah. with Leinster in 2012 with us was was your hi- was the was the obvious highlight. But despite that, or, or outside of that, what was the highlight of your career? Because obviously, you won a lot of different competitions over a long career. So if you were to pick a highlight uh, yeah. outside of that glorious day yeah. in Twickenham, what would it be? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, um, I think it's well known how much I love my time there at Leinster. And, and that final was uh, just epic. Just the carnival, carnival atmosphere of the Heineken Cup. Uh, to be with that special group um, 
And the thing that I thought where it got different after that was uh, we had these teams like Toulon with pretty much a World 15 type thing. Uh, it was actually mainly Irishmen with a few, you know, you had a few guys in. I was one of them. Um, but uh, it was actually still a proper club team, you know. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, obviously the World Cup, massive. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't say I enjoyed the World Cup, but it's just something I had to get done. Uh, been 24 years since we'd won it. We'd been always been a great team, the All Blacks, but we weren't winning when it mattered in the World Cups. We've been failing, and as the most senior guy there, as a 36 year old, uh, uh, I, I guess I felt a lot of pressure. I put a lot of pressure on myself to, to perform, and it was. It was great, you know, uh, to get that result. The French brought everything as they can do when they want to, and uh, I had so much respect for them the way they fronted. And but yeah, I can get on with my life in peace that we won that. <laughs> um, and you saw what sort of flowed after that. This last four to six years, um, so what like tackles came off, and yeah. and um, you know that they've done really well. Uh, the league grand finals are massive because uh, Super Rugby sort of goes for six months, but league is, uh, uh, I remember starting training in October one year and finishing pretty much uh, late September the next, so it's almost like an 11-month journey. So when you do that, you play, it's a war of attrition, you play 24 rounds, 26 rounds, plus origin, plus test, there's no breaks in between um, to, to hold up a, a grand you know, the trophy at the end of the league season with the with you guys uh, for the Broncos, they were just great times as well. So yeah, and like one of the things you brought to us in Leinster, you're only with us for kind of three or four months, but was training with a smile on your face and this attitude of like it's it's enjoyable working hard we know that we're out working the opposition they're not doing these extras and you had an impact on our culture while you were there even though you're only there three or four months like people still talked about you the following season the season after that and what you'd brought like, I remember days when we were outside and it was pissing rain um, and we stay around for an extra 20 minutes of scrums and you were you were scrummaging with a smile on your face and you could tell you wanted to scrummage more you're like give me more give me more we're going to keep going at it here and you brought this energy to every session how do you find now that you're in a coaching role how are you how are you adapting that and how are you getting the guys to enjoy their work because you used to talk about enjoying your work every day and how do you bring that kind of culture into the reds now yeah um, um I guess it's different when you're coaching. For me, uh, as a four-year-old, I can actually remember saying to my dad, uh, watching my brother play as an under six, let me play, let me play, Dad. I wanted to play. I was just itching. And Dad said, you've got to wait two years to the under six, then I'll let you play. Um, now I'm about two years you know, past my career, I'm 43. You know, I last played professionally as a 41-year-old. Um, I'm sitting here thinking, let me play, let me play. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it was so easy for me. I, I love to play. I love contact. I love number one camaraderie. And I love uh, physicality. I love competition. Um, I love the challenge. Um, so for me, training uh, in the gym with a smile on my face, but why? Because I'm getting better. Because I live to to train, I live to play. Uh, I love it. So thank God for for those gifts, you know. Um, with uh, coaching it, um, yeah, I've helped coach the gym here. I still do coach a little bit of gym here, even though I'm the head coach. <laughs> um, and uh, it's just a mindset, a positive mindset. And uh, I think you can, you know, I guess part of coaching is you have. Uh, the detail of what you're doing, you know, the process, all this stuff, but you also have a presence of, you know, the good coaches. They get your attention. They hopefully they inspire you. They um, they bring you along. So uh, I like to think, you know, there's a presence there when I talk to the boys, and uh, and I guess I, you know, I'm. It's only early days, but I'm. Uh, I brought through a lot of my young guys, all of my twenties, and, um, and I'm looking at. I bring guys in who are interested in in, um, in striving for excellence. So, I'm, my enemy is mediocrity. Uh, what I'm about is 
is excellent. That's what we strive for. You've never actually attained it, um, which is the best part because you just got this lifelong, you know, um, thing of of trying to attain it. You know, so uh, I, I get guys in who who I feel like their mindset uh, is, is is that way inclined, and but I also try and and, uh, and coach with a presence that uh, encourages that. Brad, um, you've said that you know your enemy is mediocrity, and you've set huge standards throughout your career. But if you think back to let's say 2000, 2001, where you're going from the top of the game in rugby league to essentially learning how to play rugby union, like you said, you weren't a force in the line ins because you didn't really know what was going on. How hard was that to 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 take that? I suppose take that dive. Brutal. It was brutal. So I've always said if I knew what I was getting into, I probably wouldn't have done it. So sometimes you just, you don't need to know what you're getting into, you know? Uh, it's good that I didn't know because I had a crack. And um, I was born in New Zealand, always meant a lot to me. Uh, my father, he died at 19, uh, but he talked about when the game, the rumours of a game professional, he said, once you've had a crack at league, maybe you could go back and um, if the game goes professional, maybe you could go back and take that challenge on. So, um, you know, there's a lot about me going back there. It wasn't just me. It was the connection uh, with my father. Um, So I went back um, and like he said, I struggled. Um, A 16-year-old could have told me more about Union. Uh, It was humbling it was uh, frustrating, you know, uh, many times, because I, uh, when I left league, uh, you're right, I was at the top of my game. I walk in the room or I go out in the park, you know, you're at that place where you can go, right, I'm just going to take this game by the scruff of the neck, you know, and then next minute you're in this other game where, you try not to embarrass yourself. You, you know, I'm going to a breakdown, standing dead upright because I don't know about how to get low. I don't know where to put my head. I don't know how to... Um, I feel uncomfortable getting in the air and lineouts. Uh, I can't take the all the information in my head that you need to know in union, lineout calls, scrum moves. Um, you know, there's all this stuff just thrown at you. They started me... Um, the position of number eight, probably one of the most hardest positions in the game to learn. I'm more of a natural player, so uh, I probably would have suited six. They they ever put they they had Ruben Thorne, the All Black captain, uh, at six at the Crusaders. Um, when I moved into lock, uh, once they tried me at eight in the NPC, uh, it, it simplified a lot more for me. I had some time to play some club rugby. And, uh, you know, um, I improved. The big thing, the big challenge when you try something different is um, it needs to become, uh, at the top level of anything, um, especially sport, you need to be instinctive. You need to see a situation and you need to act. Uh, When you're learning, I look at a situation and I'm thinking for two seconds, "Is this, this is what I'm supposed to do, this or that. But the problem is the moment's already gone. It's moved on. You know what I mean? So uh, I had to work really hard. I would go to a park with my cousin. He would call 300 times different line-out calls. So I just moved to those spots. I would watch stuff. I would, like I said, wake up at 5 a.m. hurting, not wanting to go to training, you know. But I persevered, and, and I know that, yeah, I was humbled, and I know that character was built in me. Um, I was tested, and um, my faith was massive for me. I relied on God uh, in that time, and I felt like he helped me to grow And uh, in that time. And um, and I look back at that, that first year coming to rugby, one of the most important years of my life. Uh, would I like to do that again? No. <laughs> so yeah, but I don't know if that tells you enough about it. You were you were saying that like, just how tough it was, but like imagine being dropped into a, uh, a culture like the Crusaders, like where these guys don't go easy on you. Like what was it like? No one was holding your hand there. Did they give you an equally tough time, or did you find a couple of lads were supportive when you were trying to find your feet? That's a really good question because 
it's easy to forget now there's been a lot of league guys, but I was pretty much the first league to union. And there wasn't a great feeling between league and union back then, if you remember. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was like that in Ireland. If you probably didn't, you got soccer and different Gaelic sports. In Australia and New Zealand, that it wasn't really nice between them. So I felt like there was different guys. You know, I could sense guys on the team weren't keen on me being there. I had a sort of a pretty reasonable profile coming from league. And, um, you know, there's guys I would later later on, you know, become great mates with. But I remember them being a bit cold towards me when I first came across. And, and you've got to also remember, you talked about the culture, the Crusaders, but there's an Australian and a New Zealand cultures as well. And Australia, we can be, you know, a bit more banded, a bit more brash or whatever. Um, there was that difference as well. You know, there was the league union difference. Um yeah, it was challenging, mate. Uh, I remember going back after Super Rugby and I was just down about it. I went back to Brisbane. I remember my brother, my, obviously I told you my father was my you know, my best friend and role model. Before he passed away, he wasn't around. My brother said to me, you know, if you're going to be there, mate, you're going to um, be, you know, I'd met my wife now. But, you know, she was my girlfriend, so I was, you know, I was away from her in New Zealand. So you're going to be away from your lady. You're going to get paid less. You're going to, um, you know, you're going to have all these challenges. Then at least give it your best shot. Give it a crack. Go back and, and rip in. And, um, um, you know, if it's not to be so bad, walk away. But, but you go back there and and for all that is ripping and um I, I really respect my brother for, for, for that chat. Yeah, it stilled my mind. And um sometimes when you you're hurting a bit, you know, you you need that little bit of a jolt or or just, you know, um a word and I remember I yeah, I went back and I ripped in and uh and things started to turn and you know all these years later, I'm pretty, you know, uh, I'm pleased that I took that challenge on. All right. I think Rugby Union's fairly pleased you did as well, Brad. You've given a lot to us over the years. Um, we'll let you go. Brad Torn, thank you very much for joining the Hard Yards. I appreciate your time, man. Thank you very much. Coming up, we'll be chatting with Damien Brown about his recent extreme trek across the Atlantic. Murder, she wrote, is the perfect thing to watch during the day. You can watch the start, fall off for 40 minutes, come back, see the end, perfect. You know what I mean? You've missed nothing, really. Remember, Rod, Kev in the Kalina used to have to bring two TVs into the room, one for you for Cheltenham. <laughs> like every red-blooded male in the country, he'd be watching the horse racing whereas I'd have a TV for myself for things like Murder She Wrote and Houses Under the Hammer Murder She Wrote is the perfect thing to watch during the day Our next guest will be very familiar to Connacht and Leinster fans and the chances are you'll have heard his name in the news as he completed a solo row across the Atlantic Damien Brown how are you? I'm very well thanks for having me we haven't talked to anybody who's done a solo row across the Atlantic. <laughs> Why do you do a solo row across the Atlantic, well, Damien? How long, how long have you got? <laughs> um, I suppose the when I first learned about the row and the, um, was James Cracknell and Ben Fogel. Um, they did the uh, crossing in 2005 and I read a book about it. And everything about it appealed to me. Uh, the adventure, the challenge, the experience, the extremes. Uh, and there and then I knew that I would do it. As negative as the book was and as much hardship they tried to articulate, and it just appealed to me on so many levels. So, um, obviously, uh, I was playing rugby at the time and, and uh, that was my number one priority. But I knew the minute I got out of rugby, I had uh, I would do that uh, along with a few other challenges that I want to take on. You know, I'm very interested in the um, physical and the mental side of um, the body and pushing itself and pushing your limits and all the good stuff that comes with that, the growth and the development and the learnings. Um, so that's why I delve into these things and, uh, and delve into them pretty um well, pretty deeply with these challenges. 
So, okay, so what, what else have we done? The, the You went marathon running, but it's not your ordinary marathon. No, um, that was my first major challenge. Um, once I retired, I did the Marathon des Sables, which is um, currently started yesterday for the 33rd edition. I did the 31st edition. Um, it's uh, ultra marathon across the Sahara Desert, self-supported, so you carry everything on your own back you need for the six days that it lasts. Um, it's six stages and my year was 257 kilometers so the equivalent of six marathons in five and a half days basically this is going to sound that sounds insane (laughs) (laughs) Um, I it's quite a what would you say no it's quite a kind of um, cult thing to do in ultra endurance events or ultra running Um, When it first started, I would say it's pretty insane because um, it was just one guy, Patrick Bauer, who did it in uh, whatever that is, 33 years ago um, on his own. And he had to carry all his own water. At least now, you know, we're given a tent to sleep in, a Berber tent, you know, eight people sleep in it. And you're given water every day at every checkpoint. So it's less insane than what he did. Um, But... uh, yeah, it was it was um, it was really enjoyable. Believe it or not, um, it's an incredibly well run event. Still, Patrick runs it, and uh, this gets about eleven or twelve hundred participants each year from all around the world. And um, yeah, amazing organization, amazing setup, uh, really good support, and uh, um, it's a great it's a great. Um, accelerated bonding experience. You know, you're put in a tent with uh, eight seven other. In my case, I, they pe- keep people per nationality, so Irishmen, and uh, yeah, you just suffer together for six days if you can last it out, and um, and you you form uh, really strong friendships in that time. So that's that's suffering together for let's say the guts of a week. Yeah, your next journey was two months on your own. Mm-hmm. What, what was the difference? Um, well, I. The difference, I suppose, was um, I, I I didn't think of it as a, as a kind of I didn't I wasn't didn't compare the two, you know. They were just things I was always going to do. Um, I never considered doing the row in a team or in a pair because um, I know teams. Um, I've been in teams all my life. I consider myself a decent team member. I know the dynamics of teams and I didn't feel I had as much to gain or learn from um, the team experience or a team ocean row. So it was always a, it was always going to be a solitary endeavor. Um and um, it was always going to be, yeah, maybe a little bit um, selfish, but um, you know that's what that's what I wanted to get from from the experience. Why do you say selfish? Um, well, I I suppose I wanted all the um, you could say I wanted all the kind of uh, learnings and the growth from it for myself. You know, I didn't want to kind of share it with anyone else. Um, and maybe there's a part of me deep down that wanted adulation for myself as well, mm. perhaps you know, or the, you know, the the success of it all for myself, you know, um, um, perhaps you know, I I thought about it for a long time, you know, that's twelve years thinking about it from time to time, and you know, there's probably it's you know, I, I I'm not sure, but there's probably a part of me that just you know had no interest in sharing that with anyone else because it's been mine for 12 years and it's been my goal and um you know i wanted i wanted all that for myself so going on a journey of that length and solo you are the machine um what what happened to your body over that time um so the first time i felt it was starting to break down was around day 25 um, when I say breakdown, it's just a case of sitting in that position for so long and the pressure sores that come with that, you know. So basically your undercarriage um, starts deteriorate, deteriorating first. Um, pressure sores, salt sores. The salt sores just come from being damp all the time and wet and it's very hard to get dry. You basically don't have a, a stitch of uh, clothing or anything that has a dry patch on it after can, about two can, weeks. Can I ask a silly question? Sure. What are you wearing? 
Um, basically a, a pair of Lycra shorts and it depends on the time of day. I'd start in the morning with like um, uh, a dry top on. It uh, depends on the conditions as well. And then as the day started to get hotter, as the sun came up, um, you start stripping off and basically... I think it was around day, I don't know, I'm going to say mid-30s to 40 that I, I first rode naked. So rode naked. How many days did you do that for? I didn't enjoy it at all, um, <laughs> so it didn't last too long. But um, I rode naked for about, I'd say, four or five days. And was that what was that experience like? Was that kind of, you know, fun, liberating, weird? No, it was just uncomfortable. Like, everything was uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so psychologically it's very difficult because you're going through physical pain it's like sitting on sandpaper basically mm. for um, 12 hours a day 14 hours a day rowing um, so if you can imagine you know that's painful and then you're thinking well I've got another thousand miles to go I've got another two weeks of this so it's just trying to stay positive when you're going through that discomfort bordering on pain and it did it did get to pain you know just because the deterioration kept getting worse and worse and worse and um, I felt like I'd exhausted all solutions, like rowing naked was meant to be a solution. It wasn't, um, you know, pain meds were meant to be a solution. They didn't do much. Um, varying up the seating um, wasn't much of a solution. So I just, I was kind of broken. It was breaking me down further and further and further. And um, it came to a stage where I contemplated rowing for 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off, because that's as long as I felt I could sit down without being um, in, you know, extreme pain, kind of. Thankfully, um, the solution I ended up finding was um, I brought a second seat. Now, it wasn't very well designed because I didn't use it in my training, but I cut it up into pieces and layered the pieces on top of each other and then cut holes in the seat. It was made of yoga matting, so it was, you know, and then I was able to relieve a little bit of the pressure off the sores. I got in the sea one day, um, gave myself a good scrub and came out, had a um, clean water wash, you know, because we desalinate the seawater into clean water and just scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed uh, the sores and uh, yeah it it gave me a good 10 days leeway until it all came back again towards the end so that was a physical challenge mm -hmm. that you went through over this it was 64 days 63 yeah. 63 days mm. um the mental side go back to there's a really interesting piece in the new yorker recently about antarctica David Gran about um, Henry Woolsey who tried to walk from one side clean through to the other side unassisted so even when he stopped at the South Pole he wasn't allowed to go in or receive any assistance he had to sleep outside in the same tent and all of this and he said he, he talked about losing direction um, and he said look he, he reckons that he, he lost around three miles distance today from snaking around head permanently bowed to read the compass just as shuffling skis to look at Anyway, now I'm back on track and I'm now happy I can part a straight line even through another day of the white darkness. Mm. Now, you weren't using any navigational aids either in terms of an auto aid. Yeah. So did that ever happen to you? You're sort of wondering, where am I now? Am I pointing the right way? Yeah, I had, um, I had major technical difficulties on board. Um, the first thing that went wrong was there was a thing called a deck repeater, which is a little screen on the deck that repeats basically the GPS, um, your GPS bearing, your, sorry, your bearing, your GPS position, your speed and your heading. That broke on my first capsize. So all of a sudden I was down to just the compass. Now the problem with the compass was, um, it was, there was a, there was a difference between the compass and the GPS of about 30 degrees. So I was constantly second guessing, which is right, you know. So, Does um, that mess with your head? Yeah, completely. It's an absolute mindfuck. <laughs> um, yeah, so you're, you're constantly, um, you know, like I said, second guessing. And, and then you just pick one and you just go with it kind of thing. So which, which did you go with? I went with the compass because it was between my legs, you know. Mm. Um, at the end of the day, I just I'd have a look at the GPS to see where I was and see, you know, that I was still kind of heading relatively in the right direction. But there was times where I was rowing basically. Um, well, because the, I was rowing kind of northwest when I should have been going west, or southwest when I should have been going west, because um, I lost my steering, and the steering um, without the steering was very difficult to keep straight downwind and down wave 
the minute I'd stop rowing, um, I'd be turned beam on, which means the boat would go sideways, and then I'd be heading kind of north northwest or northwest. Now, because the distance is so grand and vast, it's not really that. It's not really a huge um, difficulty. You kind of you can row that direction for ten, twenty miles. You're still going west, so you're kind of content enough in that. But it's not ideal if you're trying to get across as fast as possible. Obviously, mm, no, not great. No, um, you've done two challenges. You seem to have a list in your head. Yeah. What's the list? Um, so I would say the row was on the list of about five things. The row was the kind of the major undertaking. Um, and not just the row itself, but the um, campaign you have to put around it, you know, the fundraising and the charity side of it. Um, I'd like to cycle from, um, I'd like to cycle the Pan American Highway from the top of Alaska to Bolivar, Argentina. Um, I'd like to um, motorbike the west coast of Africa from Morocco to South Africa as well. And um, I'd like to do the Seven Summits as well, the highest mountain on each continent. Okay. Yeah. So do you cycle? Sure. Do it's you pretty easy. Have you a motorbike? <laughs> no, I've done lessons, but I never I haven't got my license yet. Right. Yeah. Okay. And mountain climbing? done? Um, I've done Kilimanjaro, Mont Blanc and another Alp called uh, Grand Paradiso I've done some high altitude stuff in Afghanistan and uh, yeah I'd like to um, you know I find mountains really difficult mentally um, Why? Because of the lack of oxygen okay. you know you're constantly in an oxygen depleted state so you're constantly out of breath basically hyperventilating and it's just about controlling controlling that breath and staying positive and almost staying in a very neutral state of mind you know so it's very like well you know from the little bit of meditation I've done it's really like a, a form of meditation you're just trying to tune in to your breathing and be as efficient and use the little the oxygen the little bit of oxygen that's in the air as efficiently as possible so um, I really struggled the time I did Kilimanjaro because I did it in the inter I did it in the pre-season or the off-season between two rugby seasons so it was pretty big like 125 kilos or so so that's not an ideal weight to go six, nearly 6,000 metres into the air so ok we go home after the last game of the season the lads are going to the pool <laughs> right yeah <laughs> you, you say nah nah I'm not doing the pool I'm dragging 125 kgs up a mountain <laughs> yeah simply that was it um, you know I've no interest in going to you know a resort or anything like that so yeah. um I had uh, I had done the a thing called the Lares Trail in Peru, uh, was, which was my first um, insight into altitude. It's like an equivalent of the Inca Trail. Yeah. You end up in, in Machu Picchu, and um, I loved it. You know, I, I was kind of uh, it was a shock to the system. Like I'd never experienced altitude, and I had a big heavy backpack, and I had my laptop in my backpack, all sorts of stupid things you know at the time but I didn't know any better so uh, I got a great reward from that um, just coming back to the the whole challenge physically and mentally and you know the the lack of um, lack of oxygen in the air so it was always in my head to go a bit higher and the obvious one is Gilly you know um, so I um, yeah basically just decided kind of one in the middle of one season that I was going to do in my off season and like I said I, I just I I pushed really hard to get to the summit. Um, my guide was actually um, kind of advising me to stop because there's, there's three peaks on um, Killy, mm. uh, Gilman's Point, uh, Stella Point, and then the top summit. And he was like, oh, I got to Gilman's. He was like, well done. I was like, what you mean? He goes, well done, you know, we go back now. And I was like, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> was, uh, so I had to had to bargain a little bit with him. I said, we'll go to Stella anyway, we'll try Stella, which is another like 150 metres in altitude or so. And I got there and he was like, okay, now we go back. And I was like, you can see the way Killy is, you can see the summit, it kind of curls around. You can see people up on the summit, you know, it's another probably 200 metres from Stella. Stella. And I was like, uh, no, we'll just try. So I, I pushed really hard. I convinced him and we pushed really hard and got to the top but then when I coming down the altitude sickness hit me hugely and I nearly became I was close enough to helpless like um, I was never I never felt so tired in all my life I'd walk you know five metres and I'd be 
bent over like I ran 400 metres flat out like I mean I was just completely hyperventilating and yeah basically helpless and it took me about two hours to kind of get back down to Gilman's and you know that should take no time at all you know you should really nearly run down that Did you get to that stage at any time in your sea crossing? No no I never had such a physical um and not a, such a physical kind of challenge uh, mm. or mental challenge the the row is really just it's hardship and it's discomfort and it's just trying to um stay positive through those things and it's time as well you know the huge amount of time that you have to stay in your own head and try and kind of try and not feel sorry for yourself because it's very very easy to feel fo- sorry for yourself out there you know um, you nearly wake up feeling sorry for yourself you have to pull on wet clothes you have to go out into the dark there's squalls hitting you like a squall is like this sh- kind of curtain of um, rain that only it's like a monsoon curtain of rain and you see it coming on the horizon but of course when it's dark in the morning you don't see it and it just hits you um, and you know it doesn't do much for your positive mindset I can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> the, the, big, the one thing I want to know Damien was it's like at the end of this and you're saying you're in your own head for 63 days you're pushing yourself through it, all these dark moments but then you get off this you're, you're back in society again and then maybe you're in the airport before you fly home and here you have TVs around you people all looking at their phones again and you're sitting on a plane there's a movie in front of your face how strange was that to try and get back to society and was it so was it weird for the first couple of days and weeks it's scary how quickly you adapt again and get back into things and and kind of the comforts of it Um, it only took a couple of days and I was kind of I just felt like the role was distant you know I wasn't like, and uh, there was so many times on the row. I was telling myself, you know, someday you won't have to get up and row. You won't have to pull on wet clothes. You won't have to go through this hardship. You won't see just the horizon. You won't, see, you, you know, surrounded by people. And then when you get there, it, you just process, like you just flip kind of back into normal routine really quickly. And it was kind of, um, I don't know, disappointing that, you know. I didn't have such vivid memories of kind of the daily stuff I went through. You know, I remember the big, I remember the big moments out there, of course, and I'll probably never forget them. But just the way everything else became distant really quickly was like kind of shocking and a little bit disappointing. And I kind of wanted to hold on to it, and it was, it was almost after a week I felt, man, oh, like what did I just do that? Or you know, I was, I was, yeah, very strange. Right. Um, what do we call you now? We used to call you a rugby player. Mm. What do we call you now? Human. Human? <laughs> yeah. I don't like the tag adventure at all. I, I actually, I, yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, I don't know if there's any such thing as an adventure. You know, the the world is mapped. You know, there's no Livingstons or Shackletons anymore. You know, those lads were, those lads were adventurers. But uh, I see a lot on social media adventures and I'm like, yeah, I don't, don't, don't buy it. Like, okay. I like to live an adventurous life. That's the way I like to put it, you know. Um, but I, I don't have any sort of, uh, if you want to put me in a box, I don't know. I don't, I try not to have one or I just don't have one at the moment. Okay, then we won't. Right. Da- Damien Brown, human. <laughs> Thank Perfect. you. Thank you very much for popping into us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. The Hard Yards, brought to you by Sports Joe. You're welcome back to The Hard Yards. We're going to take a look at some of your fan questions now. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at, at @thyrugby and use the hashtag AskTHY if you want to get a question in for next week. First one's a cracker. Well done, all things oval. This is the quality of listener we have. Bravo. Here's the question. If there was one law in rugby you could remove from the game, what would it be? Be it one not properly officiated, one which removing would improve the game or even for comedic purposes. We've had a chat about this. We've got some suggestions. I'm sure everyone's got good ones. Uh, I, I'll start. Get the ball rolling. Um, I would like to stop. I would like to go back to release the ball when you're tackled. Oh yeah, yep. right. Just release it. You weren't you you. We weren't able to hold on to it while the other guy's grabbing it. Just release the ball. That's how we were taught to play. So you mean the minute you hit the ground and you play, are you allowed when to place you, it? When you hit the ball, I'm allowed just place it. And but then I'm let not. Go. But I, yeah, exactly. Can't I'm keep not, your hand on it. No, I'll be carnage. I look. <laughs> call it like, comedy. So call this it is carnage. comedy rather than well, actual. You know, fine line between comedy and carnage. 
<laughs> right, next. Not accepted. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> All right, okay, done. Uh, right, 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 okay, we're not, I'm crossing this one off. I'm literally doing that. Okay, next. Um, slightly controversial one for me looking across to our rugby league brothers. I'll The way during a game, one of the issues at the moment is the TMO just slows the game down an awful lot. And I think for foul play, the way they do it is they put a player on report. So, oh, yeah, yeah, the white card. So a player, uh, the referee would be like, please take a look at that. I'm putting you on on report or whatever, but the game will keep playing and then they'll get punished after the game. It's slightly controversial because people will say, okay, well, the foul play was during this game, so you should get punished and it should have an impact. But I mean, it's an interesting way to keep the game flow going and not spending five minutes reviewing video footage of foul play and just let them do it, put them on report and then make the decision after that point. The other one I had was... Um, <coughs> uh, the whole tackle into maul into flop all over the ball and scrum uh, thing is something Munster and Ireland and Les Kiss like, came up with and was an amazing tactic for Ireland like all the teams in Europe seem to be doing it Explain now. exactly what you mean by that step by step so what what, what you mean? So where uh, a ball carrier carries into the tackler and rather than uh, chop him straight to ground or mm. bring him to ground and let him place the ball back or bring him to ground and try and fight for the ball on the ground it's Hold them and try and use your legs to actually hold them up in the air. Okay. Like so Ian this Henderson is, this is the choke tackle that we all know and love. The choke here. tackle, and it's kind of evolved now where someone like Henderson is like almost hitting the guy low and driving him up hmm. so he can't get to ground. Another guy will come in and smother him. Um, and Johnny Sexton's really good as hmm. well. There's yeah. a few guys that are masters at it and they get around, <clears throat> hold them up for two or three seconds while looking at the ref. The ref will call them all and then they'll flop on the ball. Okay, so you don't like this. Uh, I think it's something that didn't exist until Les Kiss and whoever else in in Ireland kind of came up with it. I think it was pretty smart, but I just think it's actually quite negative from a open play standpoint. Okay, I think it slows the game down a bit. Yeah, yeah. and I think all the teams are trying to do it. And why wouldn't they? But I think it would be an interesting rule change, just to say. I don't know what the rule change would be, but you can't. I mean, it's a difficult one. You can't say that you can't set up a mall because some teams use it as an attacking ploy as well to set up a mall off a rock or whatever. Some of the big French teams use it. But mm. um, yeah, all right. So we're, we're still on. So we're, so we're accepting the on report. We like that suggestion, do we? Yeah, well, you can try, try it out. If, the if great thing about rugby is if like it's not clear and obvious. Yeah, if it's not clear and obvious, then yeah. we sort of say, lads, you've got that's it on report when we find out. Well, like yeah, it. that's the thing that's improving about rugby. That sometimes it's like the ref just like he's getting stuff in his ear. Like I've seen something here. Let them kind of look at the replays and then go and back to the ref about it. Yeah, 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 yeah okay. exactly. It's all about okay. continuity. Yeah. Okay. And are we are we are we ready to ditch the choke tackle yet? Because mainly because you know we're good at it here. Wouldn't be good for Ireland. Yeah. No. Monster. Okay. So I'm being parochial. Or Lancaster, actually. I'm not accepting that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Pat. I have um, an addition rather than taking anything out of the rule book. It's, I'm thinking the way Barry Heron has kind of revitalised darts and snooker with the, the golden ball. So what I was thinking was you have a player who you designate as that this guy for five minutes he gets double points. <laughs> so it's like the golden player. Um, so then let's say if it's Stockdale or something like that get the ball to Stockdale but I was thinking the only three people marking him I just <laughs> yeah, take him out I was yeah. saying the how only many points does he get for a try double points double points I was saying the only negative and this the only negative I can see from it is that you might have an increase in like ribs being broken <laughs> guys being targeted for those five minutes oh he'd be absolutely yeah Alan Wynne Jones would just sit on him for five minutes yeah. he'd be milled <laughs> I, that, that could be interesting interesting because like the worst thing you could do is force it and be like yeah, you know, someone makes a clean line break and waiting for Stocktail and gets absolutely smashed. Or <laughs> like it would be, be interesting <laughs> to watch, yeah. it, if, especially if you were if you were nine points down at the end of a game. You know, there you go. We still get the power play in the pocket, guys. Ah, oh, the power. Would your iPad like teams would be absolutely killing the Golden Boy? <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, that's it, the Golden Boy. Yeah. Oh, oh god. god. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So this is one um, needs development. Needs. Yeah, we'll but go we work like on how it you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love it. Okay, well done, all things over. Really like those. Um, right, from Mick Thompson. Uh, Ty Byrne is going to Munster next year. He's been phenomenal for Scarlets, but with the way Munster play compared to Scarlets, is there a risk he won't be as effective as he has been these past two seasons? No. No, there's not a risk? or No, no there's not a risk. Okay. Because he's got a lot of facets to his game. 
Hmm. I mean, regardless of who he's playing for, he keep getting turnovers. He's good in the line out. Are we sure about that? So this is, I was talking um, to a producer about this off air because it, it's something that comes up with player recruitment and team sport, which mm. is that when you lift a player out of one team structure and drop him into a second, mm. his role mightn't be exactly the same. He might react differently to what other players can do. So at, at Scarlet's, yeah. he's been told, and he told us on the show, you're free, just go get the ball. Yeah. You see ball, get ball, Tyke, that's your mm. job. Don't worry about anything else. <laughs> Would Munster and Ireland give him the same freedom? I, I don't know. Probably not. He's going to have to adapt his game yeah. like you would in any new team, like you would going from Munster to Ireland. But the best players can do that. And he's just got so many facets to his game. He, mm. He's not just a turnover merchant. He's not just a ball carrier. He's not just great in the line out. Like, he's got a lot of elements. You see him getting like unbelievable turnovers in malls where yeah. he just climbs through the mall and he could, like he just he's a complete six second row he really is that he's probably the best six stroke second row I've seen in a long time that he can he can he's equally good in both positions actually mm. really hard they're very different positions um, and I think the Scarlets does suit his second row play and that they play quite a loose open game for their, yeah. their tight forwards like Rob Evans are expected to throw the ball around and offload us to, I would say for Munster he's more a six personally okay. Okay. Uh, because they expect their second rows to be more pick and go in tight the Billy Holland type player so I would guess that he'll play six for Munster and he'll be absolutely top class to it's interesting considering, you know, considering O'Mahony's I know six, I don't know how I mean O'Mahony could end up playing seven I don't know how they're going to fit them all in but it's um, yeah. for me he's a, he's a Munster six but mm. The only thing I was thinking about that was just <coughs> Copeland was a guy who was absolutely brilliant at Cardiff Blues and then he came back to Munster and he had to adapt his game and didn't quite do yeah, as well and so there's a danger of that but um, yeah, he's just being you can't see him going bad and no. um, you'd imagine him going to Australia this summer as well Like so that will probably get him used to mm-hmm. the, the whole Irish system as well so he won't just be dropped in at Munster and uh, although it might kind of reduce his pre-season I suppose which might not help but no, no, he'll, he'll, be interesting, he'll do well though. he'll be a different player that's for sure he yeah. will be different uh, like, so our expectations need to adjust slightly but the the tool, the tools that he has they won't change yeah because like I think playing in that Scarlet's team right now everyone looks good because <laughs> they just play great rugby yeah. and there's a lot of good footballers Munster play a different brand and mm. they wear teams down and like they did against Toulon they hang in there and they, they know what to do to win it's just a different it's okay. a different type of game right very last question what's the better preparation for the Champions Cup semi-finals two home games for Leinster against Italian opposition or warm weather of training quote unquote from Munster in South Africa this is very quickly Kev what would yeah. you prefer as a player uh do you want the short or the long answer? Short. <laughs> I actually think I actually think Leinster probably will benefit more, but only because they've they've been very good this season at just switching on for the big games. Okay. As in, they, during the Six Nations, they didn't play together in the lead up to that Saracens game. The, the starting fifteen hadn't played together for two or three months, and they just switched it on. Yeah. So they seem to have an ability to cycle players in and out, and then just bang, here's the top fifteen. Let's go and do it. So I actually think Leinster they can rest guys. I know Johnny Sexton and, and Sean Cron and Fergus McFadden spend a week in Dubai um, on holidays and you know they'll get more guys on holidays this week and they'll be really rested and ready to go for the last five or six games Is there anything season. to be said for the Monster guys being on tour like as a group as a bonding thing yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly not a negative, but personally, in terms of the optimal preparation for a semi-final, I would just probably prefer to be in Leinster's shoes. Sleep in your own bed. Even though Conor Murray would look great with a tan, I think, in, uh, <laughs> in a semi-final. <laughs> I've been in South Africa for a couple of weeks. but Well, these are the great preparation dilemmas that it's good to have. <laughs> okay, uh, make sure to use the hashtag AskTHY if you want to get a question in for next week. Thanks to Pat, to Kev, to Brad and Damien, to Alan McNam for producing, and Shane Dempsey and Fiona Delaney for production. We'll be back next Monday with a new podcast. Subscribe to it on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and every good podcast app to get it straight to your phone. This has been The Hard Yards. I'm Andy McGeady. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week. The Hard Yards, brought to you by Sports Joe.